They are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in due season with leaves that do not wither. Everything they do shall prosper. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. What comes to mind when you hear the word virtue? Perhaps you think of moral codes or rules. Perhaps you consider the four classical virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and maybe together with them, the three theological virtues, St. Paul's faith, hope, and love. Maybe you think of virtue signaling, that practice of using carefully selected language or behavior to give the impression that one holds the right opinion on some contentious issue. Or perhaps your mind strays even to the ominous news last week that the Taliban has replaced the Afghan Ministry of Women's Affairs with the Ministry of Virtue and Vice. All of our readings this morning point us to virtue, to the virtues. I think most of us are pretty clear that the Christian life involves the confession of sins, things not to do, the things that destroy our lives and destroy the world. Virtues are the opposite, things that build up, things that sustain, gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we seek to live a good and holy life, when we seek to grow in holiness, we are seeking virtues. For the author of the letter of James, The virtues are cultivated. James writes of a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. Now, James writes here of wisdom, of the earthly and heavenly varieties. And wisdom, of course, is not synonymous with virtue. Wisdom is a virtue, after all. But the wisdom that James describes as heavenly sounds a lot like a list of virtues. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality or hypocrisy. Compare this to earthly wisdom, he says, bitter envy, selfish ambition, boastfulness, falsity. We heard also from the book of Proverbs this morning, the last chapter, in fact, the 31st chapter. Now, depending on your background, the phrase Proverbs 31 might mean nothing to you, or it might mean a lot, and not necessarily for good. This chapter should be a reminder for us that it is not only the Taliban that has used its sacred texts in the deployment of a sometimes violent patriarchy. 
We have our own legacy in the church to contend with. Now, the text itself is quite beautiful, and there's much to commend within it, but sadly, centuries of Christian women have found their identities and their vocation defined through the narrow funnel of these 20 verses at the end of the book of Proverbs through this ancient acrostic poem, the ode to the capable or virtuous wife. And while some women in history have found certain paths to independence and leadership within its confines, we ought to scratch our heads a bit when ancient wisdom literature is used to order our understandings of gender and marriage today. If there is anything to commend of the virtues listed in Proverbs 31, they are surely for all of us and not just for women or married women. And it's at least interesting, if not important, to note that while Proverbs 31 seems primarily concerned with the duties of a wife, the real stars of the New Testament are curiously never married. Just take the three Marys, for example. The Blessed Virgin Mary conceiving Jesus without the help of a man. The financially independent Mary of Bethany running a household with her sister Martha, throwing dinner parties for Jesus. And of course, the heroic Mary Magdalene, the first to witness the resurrection sent by Jesus to tell this good news, she who became the apostle to the apostles. The virtues of these saints complicate, to say the least, the picture of the ideal woman portrayed in Proverbs. And the entire gospel, in fact, compl complicates the more complementarian view of gender and marriage that we find in Proverbs. But the gospel points us to a different understanding of virtue. In his constant turning upside down of logic and convention, in his insistence that the first will be last, and the last will be first, there's almost something, dare I say, queer in Jesus' teaching. Queer in that broad sense of the word, breaking down norms and binaries in favor of something far more richer, far more complex. Time and time again, Jesus upends our conventional way of thinking, breaking those rules that we thought were inherent to the world and to our lives. When he hears his disciples arguing about which is the greatest, Jesus tells them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. He takes a child and tells them, if you welcome this child, you welcome me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. If you want to be great, he's implying, do the opposite of what you think you should. Be last. Be a servant. Be like a child. Friends, none of this virtue stuff for Jesus is 
good advice for getting ahead in life. You don't typically win an election or make a lot of money or win a war by being peaceable and gentle. It's hard to win an argument or to convince someone that you are right or your idea is right or your political party is right if you are, as James says, willing to yield. Those who want to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Last of all. Last place in the popularity contest. Last place in the court of public opinion. Last place in the race to get as much money or success or promotions as you can. Last place is a scary place to be. For Jesus, the cross is last place. Last of all and servant of all stretching out his arms, not to save himself, but to save the world, taking on the pain and shame and abandonment of a world of sin, a world that so often seems empty of real virtue. But those who want to be first must be last. And Jesus is true to his word. Last of all on the cross, first of all he becomes in his resurrection. The first to rise from the dead, the first fruits of our redemption in Paul's words, the new Adam, the new human being, greatest of all, not by winning anything, but by laying down his life for the world for being pure and peaceable and gentle and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits for his virtues. Some of you here today will be commissioned as a search committee, given the sacred and important task of calling the next rector of our parish. To you, let me say, these virtues are not just the qualities that you will be looking for in a new rector, holy attributes to be found in some holy priest who will come here and do holy things. Rather, they are the very qualities that you will want to take up for yourself as you go about your holy work. And if we are wise, they are the qualities that we will all take on as we listen to each other and share the stories of our encounters with God in Jesus Christ in this place as together we seek a new chapter in our common life. These virtues will not grow our budget or our standing in the community but they will help us fix our eyes on Jesus and on his cross and on his resurrection. And they will help us live together, live well together, as we seek to be Christ's body in the world. And so in the words of St. James, let us 
submit ourselves, therefore, to God. May we resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Let us draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.